Thank you for listening to this talk produced by the Art Gallery of South Australia. So I'm, I'm sure most of you have been involved in the uh, Connect opportunities when we've had temporary exhibitions on. This is the first time we've done the collection and, and I guess the thing about the collection is that it is really the bread and butter of what curators do. We acquire works, we develop the collection thinking ahead of 100 years, what's going to be needed in the future, what works are going to be transformative to audiences, you know, well past when we're dust in the grave. Mm. <laughs> and we also, I mean, Tracy Locke talks a little bit about Clara Beckett in this way, but for me, we I guess lots of curators end up having artists or periods or moments that kind of haunt them. Mm. They're always there in the background. They're always part of your career, no matter where you go, the artist always appears. And I think for me, it's always William Morris and anyone who is in the role of decorative arts at the Art Gallery of South Australia will experience that. Mm. And no matter what part of craft or design I'm looking at, past, present, future, international, Australian, there's a bit of Morris there. There he is with his beard looking at me. can never get away from him. He's also incredibly important to this collection and not just, you know, for his the role he played in the development of interior design in Adelaide in the 19th century, but there's so much relevance, so much of what Morris was grappling with in his time, the same as what Jam Factory Associates deal with today in 2021. It's the same language, same issues, just a different period. I guess, you know, for me in decorative arts, oh gosh, this is the point where I'm like, Rebecca, don't go on a big tangent, but I might. <laughs> for me in decorative arts, my discipline and my area, it, it crosses a lot of interesting um, sort of disciplines. It's not just fine arts. I work a lot with works that may be considered more social history. So history, cultural studies, mm. design, thinking about the history of making, the history of manufacturing, all of these ideas are really important mm. to my area. And all of these are very much integral to the story of, of William Morris. So I've got, well, this is nicely positioned here because I have the most important work of Morris and Co in the collection. And then behind you, I have the story of why it's here in Adelaide, <laughs> um, which I hope you all know this story, um, but the wonderful Barsmith family um, in the late 19th century, who were probably the wealthiest people in Australia at that time. Um, they made their money um, through farming mostly. They are probably the first people to own a car in Australia. And they also loved this amazing designer called William Morris um, from England. And they furnished their entire homes with Morris & Co material. And this is the inside of Torrens Park, which is now Scotch College. And you can see in this image that there is Morris upon Morris upon Morris <laughs> upon Morris, wallpaper, carpets, the furnishing fabrics, the furniture, um, the glass, all of it in this image is, well, most of it in this image is Morris & Co material. And not only that, but a lot of the works in that particular photograph uh, have come into the gallery's collection in the last 30 years or so. Um, but I do like to point out, I mean, that is conspicuous consumption to the very end. This <laughs> is not... This is not the interior aesthetic that William Morris was looking for. He's more of like, you know, cute little cottage with white walls and some strawberries and a little bird that perches and maybe some, you know, carpet there and a bit of, but that, that's just ridiculous. But <laughs> this is the reason why in Adelaide we have such a great collection of Morris & Co um, material. Um, 
what else do I want to talk about? Just some founding ideas and principles. I guess one of the important issues when we're thinking about Morris and William Morris, uh, Morris and Co. is um, the Industrial Revolution, which is really integral to where he finds himself in the late 19th century. So we have three really key moments in the late 18th century, 19th century, um, that uh, calls well, the arts and crafts movement, which is very much the movement that William Morris starts. Um, the Baltimore steam engine in 1760s, which uh, basically uh, enables trains to be developed and mass movement of people and stuff around the country. The second one is the mechanised weaving. So rather than fabrics being produced in cottage industries, we have mass movement of people from the country into the cities and they're working in big um, manufacturing um, cotton in particular. Mm -hmm. And the third one is in 1857, the development of aniline dye, which produces the first synthetic dyes. Um, all sorts of crazy colours can be produced at relatively cheap costs. This completely transforms the way that people make and people consume goods in the 19th century. And most of those we still see today. We couldn't have fast fashion without mechanised weaving. We couldn't have fast fashion without um, steam, for example, which moves things around fast. And so the late 19th century, Morris finds himself in this position where A, things are being produced um, by people in really poor conditions. So working people um, are moving into these cities and they're producing cotton and their health is terrible. Their working conditions are really poor. Um, it is not a great condition, uh, environment for them. He also finds that people are buying a lot of crap, consumerism, the rising middle class. People are consuming a lot more and not things of particularly good qualities. Mm. So, William Morris, just jump in any time, I'll just keep going. No, no, it's good. So, no, it's good. William Morris is kind of, he's like the second version of the Pre-Raphaelite Brotherhood, who are a really important artistic movement um, from the mid-ish to late 19th century. It's basically a group of artists who hate the Enlightenment. They hate kind of how science has made everything static and logical, and they're longing for a period which is a before that about magic and mystery and Arthurian tales and English um, uh, sort of medieval storytelling um, and the magic that comes with that period. And so through their art, they resurrect a lot of this imagery. Um, and Morris is kind of, well, he's like a fan of the pre-Raphaelite Brotherhood, but um, he's also kind of one of the later versions of, of that particular movement. Um, and he goes to Oxford um, University and he meets someone called Edward Byrne-Jones. And we call it um, Tansy Curtin, our international art curator and I, it's like the the BFF of arts and crafts <laughs> movement there just become absolute best friends. And together, they are very politically minded. They have, uh, I guess they're very socialist in many ways in their beliefs. Um, and Morris starts his company, Morris & Co, in the second part of the 19th century because A, he wants to produce a design, uh, decorative arts that challenges the crap that's coming out, that's being produced. He wants to resurrect old techniques that are dying out. Um, and he wants everyone to enjoy these objects in, in 
their lives. Um, always get this quote wrong, so I actually wrote it down. And he famously says, have nothing in your house that you do not to be useful or believe to be beautiful. Um, and it reminds me of, there's that wonderful Australian economist, Richard Dennis, and he wrote that book, Affluenza. And he says something about the difference between consumerism and materialism, and that consumerism is the love of buying stuff, and materialism is the love of stuff. And I feel like that's what Morris is getting at. He wants you to have things that you love and cherish forevermore. And that's kind of, you know, what he wants people um, to consume um, in their homes. But of course, in resurrecting old techniques, it means that the price point is not really achievable to everyday people, which is why the Bar Smith family, uh, probably the only people in Adelaide mm. and their peers who can actually afford Morris & Co um, material. Um, now, all the works in our collection um, of Morris & Co were acquired since 1990-ish by the curator at the time, Christopher Menz, except for one work, which is the most important, which is the Adoration of the Magi Tapestry behind me. Now, this has been in the gallery's collection for 104 years. <laughs> it was um, bought in 1917 by, from the person who commissioned it, George Bookman. I think there's a, he's, has he got a statue out the front? Brookman? Yep, he does. Yeah. Yep. And a he's, building, the Brookman building. Of course, yeah, he's got a statue and a building. So he's loaded. <laughs> um, so he actually helped us acquire some early decorative arts for the collection. So he would travel to Europe and he would buy for himself and then also buy for us. Um, he went to the 1901 Great Exhibition in Paris and he saw uh, Morris's Holy Grail tapestries there and he decided that he had to have one for himself. He travelled to... Merton Abbey, which is where Morris & Co was manufacturing tapestries. And he convinced them to make a version of this particular tapestry for him. This is the number six of 10 tapestries of at the Adoration. The first version is at Exeter College, which Edward Byrne-Jones and Morris collaborated on specifically for Exeter, um, being Oxford um, uh, students. Um, I always like to boast about this particular work because most of the 10 have been in interiors at some point and so the reds are not very red whereas ours is very vibrant and very fantastic <laughs> and all the colours uh, are just perfect because it's been in a collection for so long. Um, Musée d'Orsay recently acquired a work from the, uh, one of, I think it might be number seven, um, from the estate of Yves Saint Laurent. Now, I should actually talk about the work, talk about tapestry a little bit. So this kind of work takes a really, 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 really long time to make. This is incredibly labour-intensive. Um, all of the materials are sourced from nature. The dyes are all natural dyes. Um, from memory, it would have to have a cotton weft and a cotton, cotton warp and a woolen weft. I think I've got that the right way around. <laughs> and I guess one of the things that comes up a lot in the imagery in for Morris, for Edward Byrne Jones and for the Pre-Raphaelite Brotherhood is a lot of religious imagery. If you're going to go back to medieval art, then you're going to get a lot of religious depictions um, um, in, in, I guess, in a time where the church did control a lot of um, art. Um, so this particular uh, 
uh, tapestry depicts um, not the birth of, but soon after of Christ. Um, and with uh, medieval art, um, and I guess in pre uh, when population wasn't illiterate, everything has a meaning, every kind of motif and uh, everything is there for a particular reason. And I just saw the axe down the bottom and I can't remember what the axe means. But um, what we have here is uh, Mary in the middle with Jesus, Joseph here, an angel. And then we have the wise people. And you know, someone once told me that the wise person at the very end looks like Grace Jones. And I love to tell people that because once you see it, you can't unsee it and it's really annoying. But what we have here is Joseph is carrying some twigs which is a reference to uh, the crown of thorns, the crucifixion of Jesus. Um, we have uh, red roses, blood, again, loose um, reference to crucifixion of Jesus. Uh, there's a crown here, and the crown refers to Christ, uh, Jesus as Christ. There is the shape of the heart, which is kind of cross-like which is again crucifixion. There is a pond behind, which is about baptism. And then uh, Madonna lilies up here, which is strongly associated uh, with Madonna Mary. I think I've captured everything in that. But the interesting thing about it is it really is, I mean, I would say how many roses are were present at the birth of Christ? I'm not sure there were that many, but it really is a, an interesting kind of English, very English depiction of that very Medi um, mm. Middle Eastern um, story. Um, this particular work was uh, brought back to Australia in 1902 by Brookman. Um, he kind of, there's a link there to Federation, um, which always is a very strange thing to me that <coughs> an an English, a work by an English artist depicting the birth of Christ would be the best artwork to buy to celebrate Federation. Um, <laughs> but very, you know, English, Australian, a sense of Australianness was very much linked with Britishness and English art that was one of the same for many people, especially people who had money. Um, there are some great quotes from the newspapers at the time that kind of describe this particular work. Um, so it was in the Unley Town Hall and it's described as one of the finest pieces in the world and a thing of beauty and a joy forever. Words fail one when he attempts to even indicate the glory of this tapestry. Whoever gazes on this tapestry will feel refined, ennobled, purified and uplifted. <laughs> I think it's a great work. That's a lot of pressure on a tapestry. Um, now, we also have, uh, I mean, I do like to talk about the ladies, but I do want to focus on sort of the best piece of Morris & Co in the gallery's collection. Um, but there's been a lot of renewed interest on um, William Morris's second daughter, May Morris, and she headed up the textile workshop. Um, she started doing that around 22, she was very young. Most of her career, her designs were sold as her father's because um, he was... Uh, they were worth more. Yeah, worth more and he was better known, he could sell them. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't until his death that um, they started selling her work under her name. So this particular embroidery here is attributed to May Morris. This is a May Morris design, and this is attributed to May Morris. The wonderful thing about the embroideries is not just the design um, um, that uh, May Morris has created, but they were also uh, embroidered by women of Adelaide. 
So I always get confused. This is Elston Mitchell, who's the second daughter of Robert and Joanna Barr-Smith. And this is the daughter-in-law of um, Joanna and Robert Barr-Smith. Um, and so these would be in parts started. So some of the embroidery stitches would have already been applied and then the person would have received it and then finished it. And I think there's a great amount of accomplishment in these particular works by by the, not just the designer, but the embroiderer themselves. I like having the hand of the, the Adelaide person mm. um, in these particular works. I think it would be a lovely thing to pick up on that in the classroom. The idea of someone starting something and then the students themselves continuing. And what you have, of course, with Morris is this bridge across geography from one hemisphere to the next. And from William Morris, then through May Morris to the Barr-Smith family, from the UK all the way down to Adelaide, I would literally be pointing that out on a map and talking through the timeframes. And then starting with your own students to think about this notion of a collaboration. Because a collaboration undermines all of those ideas that Beck was talking about before with the Enlightenment. The artist had become a singular genius. Morris was actually much more interested in the medieval concept of the craft guild, where everybody got to have a go, where everyone's artisanal skills could be brought to the table, where the notion of collaboration was kind of central to the execution of the work. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so three designers in this particular work, five makers. Mm -hmm. One of them died, but not because of weaving it. It was not related. <laughs> but yeah, so there are a lot of people involved in every mm -hmm. single part of the design and making of the works in, in, on display. I think Morris also begs the question of, well, who are the William Morris figures of today? If you did a case study on Morris, on his... He was a bit of a Janus figure. You know, Janus is the god of January, the god of the doorway. He was looking back to medievalism, but also looking forward. He was thinking about a future society and what a future society needed and rejecting the industrialisation that had led to poverty and to poor wages etc. So I think it would be really fantastic, particularly if you're teaching design, I bet a lot of you are, to start to think about, well, what are the products of the future? There was a, there's an irony in the Morris School because those things weren't necessarily attainable. What does it mean? How can we create attainable, environmentally friendly, socially sustainable, culturally sensitive products for today? And what does art look like through that framework? At a price point that people At a can price point that's affordable. <laughs> it's, a, it's a big challenge. The last one is the, you know, the associates of the jam factory, they'll go, no, nah, nah. Nah, I'm out. <laughs> but a case study with the jam, if you're going to visit the jam, Take your students to the jam, then come and look at the Morris Room. I think it would be really interesting to think about that idea and to play them out through contemporary practices. Great. Have you guys got any questions? I love the way, I mean, we're so lucky with this collection because I think one of the pertinent issues for contemporary museums in Australia with strong European collections is the question of relevance, that you've got students in Adelaide looking at these collections and thinking, well, what's this got to do with me? And this is a beautiful example of, well, just down the road, there was a family who were, were the largest commissioners really outside of the United Kingdom of William Morris. And hence our collection is, is today considered to be the largest outside of the UK. Um, people tell me that, because um, 
that they probably kept Morris and Co in business for a little bit longer than they were otherwise fashionable. Um, <laughs> and that because the Barsmiths were uh, Scots, that they bought a lot of things at a slightly lesser price point, because <laughs> it's, it's a bit of a rude thing to say about Scots. Um, but Brookman, um, he just went for the big things <laughs> in the Brookman family. So. Yeah, that's why it's so much stuff. Sure. There's a really lovely theme that's going to run through tonight about the home and the idea of art and the home, and I think it's one that would accord with your students as well. Morris believed that art could be a whole work of art. And there's a beautiful German word. It's a word that's three words together. It's Gesamt Kunstwerk, which means a whole work of art, a total work of art. So how can the home, in fact, be a site for art making? Rather than the home being in opposition to the idea of a public gallery, how can that idea of beauty be brought into the home itself? And that's probably a nice segue to move upstairs. What do you think, Beck? There's also a nice Clarice reference there as well. It's true. Yeah, there's yeah. a strong connection with the home in her making. And I do think through the, the recent experience and the current experience of COVID, the home and the domestic has been sharpened, has been sharpened as a, as a civic space in some ways, as a space of agency, and I think has probably gained some power over the last year or so. Do you agree? Certainly it's gained some importance, if not power. Okay, we're going to go upstairs into Gallery 13. Now, I don't think people would describe you and I as Anglophiles usually. But it does strike me that we're having, there's a bit of an English theme, at least to the first part of what we're talking about this evening. The concept of the home and the home as the locus of creativity and agency is so pertinent for the Bloomsbury Group and specifically for Duncan Grant, Clive Bell and Vanessa Bell. The group of artists that are associated with Charleston House, which was a Gesamt Kunstwerk of its own, which was established just over 100 years ago, are absolute touchstones of this notion of the artist as creative agent who knows no material bounds. An artist who might see themselves as a painter ostensibly, but would consider every possible part of their domestic world as the surface for a painted experience. Now, I'm just going to talk a little bit about Vanessa Bell in particular, and you may have even heard me talk about Bell before because she is a favourite of mine and unfortunately one of too few women in our European collection. But she's a particularly interesting example because Bell had a practice of her own was of course the older sister of Virginia Woolf. In fact, Gordon Square that's depicted here in Bloomsbury in London was, this is a house here in Gordon Square, 42 Gordon Square that she shared with Woolf. Woolf wasn't Woolf at the time, Woolf wasn't married to, to uh, she hadn't married as yet, so she was still Stevens, but they shared this house together. And whilst they shared particular principles or philosophies with William Morris, there, there was also a tension. They adopted some of the values, the idea of the house becoming a Gesamtkunstwerk, but at the same time they rejected some of the, probably what they saw at the time as outmoded, old-fashioned aspects of Morris decoration. And I think you can see it in this particular work. If you think about this work here, we've got flattened colour, defined or delineated by strong cloisonné, 
where the earlier homes of Virginia and Vanessa had been full of Morris, by the time the young women, this was their first independent house in the case of Virginia Woolf in particular, by the time Woolf moved, not Woolf Stevens, moved to Gordon Square, the Morris had been thrown out in preference for these flat, bold colours with some chintzy fabrics. In this image here, we have a, a few key things happening. We have the need for painting to radically redefine itself. With the invention of photography, the very idea of painting as a medium that imitated the real world becomes an anachronism. There is no point in the brush being the enemy of the painter when a camera can do what a painter could do in the past. Painting, therefore, has to find its phoenix. And painting finds its phoenix through the modernism of the first few decades of the 20th century and late 19th, late 19th arguably as well. Flattened colour, bold forms, but most importantly, the hierarchy of subject matter where God, mythology, history and portraiture had sovereignty has been jettisoned. If you think back to the Magi tapestry, the religious symbolism there has been jettisoned in favour of the vernacular, in favour of the, very, the everyday, perhaps most importantly, in favour of the subjective, the emotional. The artist is no longer the genius celebrity, nor is the artist the guild member and just the artisan. The artist is the individual who can channel an emotional experience. I cannot look at this painting without seeing Edvard Munch's painting called Puberty. And I cannot look at this painting without looking at Julie Rapp, Australian artist's work which appropriates Edvard Munch's painting, her series Persona and Shadow. If I was in the classroom these days, I'd be looking at this work alongside the Munch, alongside the Julie Rapp, and I'd be thinking about the artist's subjectivity two female artists in the company of a male artist, but I'd be moreover thinking about this idea that the modern artist is about making meaning and making an experience based on emotion for the viewer. We know or we can see so very little about this subject. In fact, the subject, the figure, is diminished in the composition. Her, his, Gender or sexuality is obliterated or generalised. We have a sense that it could be a female figure, but we don't have, I'm looking over at the Watts on the other side of the room, we have none of the specificity of representing the body according to the canonical idea of beauty. That's rejected in favour of a stripping back that gives us this kind of emotional take. I love to look at all of these together because these artists are all part of a very important moment or series of moments really across the first few decades of the 20th century. The date on the bell is 1912, just to give you a sense of how very early it is. By, I think, I think Charleston House was about 1914, I want to say, Beck, but you could easily check that. But this is towards the end of the period in Gordon Square. They moved in and around, I think it was about 19... 1909. So you've got these flattened forms, embrace of modernism, strong black line, cloissonne, 
Artists like Emile Bernard and Gauguin were using that strong form to delineate, that strong line to delineate form. And you've got this idea that this is just called bedroom, Gordon Square. An embrace of the quotidian, the vernacular, the everyday, and at the same time, a rejection of power, prestige, and the idea of, um, the idea of a hierarchy of subjects. This very same woman was involved, no doubt, in this, in this particular work. In terms of dates, this is 1913, well, the Amiga workshops were 1913 to 1920. This is dated to the year after, so this is the lily pond table, dated to the year after, 1913-14, and attributed to Duncan Grant. I've always thought the attribution might be a little bit narrow, Beck. Well, yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, has that happened in art history? Yes, I dare <laughs> yes, say it right. has. You know, I always feel strange talking about this particular work because really it's a painting in my mind. It's not yeah. actually, well, it is decorative arts. It is a functional work, but the way that Grant and probably Bell <laughs> has used the table, it's a canvas. Um, and I always, always looking at the photos of Charleston Farmhouse, have a look at them. They're ridiculous. Um, now, I have two two-year-olds and I look at those interiors and think, my God, I could not live like that. It would be terrifying. <laughs> you think about every surface within the home is a canvas, literally. Mm -hmm. The fireplace, the plates, the table, um, the cabinet, um, taking quite mundane, boring pieces of furniture and turning them into palettes for the artist. So you really, canvas, table, same deal for members of the, the Amiga workshops which is very much this, the decorative arts moment and business um, that came out of the Bloomsbury Group. There's something around 1913, 1914, where some of the most powerful works um, were created. Um, one of the things about the Melrose is that we have wonderful natural light coming through, um, and it means that we have some very important works that we are not able to display in this particular gallery. Um, hands down, maybe like the top five pieces in the decorative arts collection is a work um, designed by Vanessa Bell. It's an amazing linen printed textile. It's called the Maud Design, which she made up into some um, pajamas very loose cutting um, <laughs> uh, ensemble for another uh, founding member of the Amiga workshops and Bloomsbury um, artist um, Roger Fry to wear to, um, uh, I think it was a Ballet Russe event, mm -hmm. not the actual performance. I think, oh my God, these are all the things that I, I would just love to be, like go back and channel mm. and have that moment in our history. <laughs> But that particular design, I mean, the thing, the thing about the Amiga workshop is they're, they're, they're in the legacy and the, the tradition and they, Roger Fry in particular, he's very interested in Morris & Co. I guess at the later part of the arts and crafts movement, there are a lot of um, designers who are architects and they are working in mechanised processes. So if you think about um, Voicy and Ashby, they're all working in metals and um, using machines to manufacture their designs. Um, and one of the key things about the pieces that come out of the Amiga workshops is this evidence of the hand. Um, which is a really important theme and recurring 
thing for decorative arts and the idea of modernism that the hand is visible, that you can literally see sometimes a fingerprint or the way the hand has constructed something. And in this particular um, canvas, <laughs> mm. um, Grant has literally poured paint on top. This is me talking about the application of paint. Yeah, it's good. <laughs> poured paint onto the table to create this lily pond um, effect, um, which for me always looks like some kind of interesting camouflage design. Now, this is one of, I think, six examples of, of this particular design. There's two at Charleston, I think. The others are in the V&A's collection. Yeah. They also did the same design on some screens, which are also in um, the Victorian Albert Museum and ours collection. And much more abstracted than the V&A in particular. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So the orange goldfish that are flecking across here may not read to everybody as goldfish. Feel free to come and get a bit closer and stretch your legs for those at the back. So you've got a sense of the movement of this lily pond and these goldfish flicking across. When you go and Google the V&A example, um, you'll be able to compare that with your students. Uh, even the idea of the cereal, you know, Beck talking about the tapestry downstairs as one of ten, talking about this as one of six. This idea of production and reproduction I think is a really interesting one. Something else that we've been talking about without pinning it down, and it might be worth doing because I think it would be good to talk about it in the classroom, is the idea of bringing the outside in. You've noticed that we've just been ensconced in peonies and lilies and acanthus and fleur-de-lis down there with William Morris, and we're now in the lily pond bringing it into the home. I think that's a beautiful starting point for your students and some creative work that they might do. Or turning anything into a canvas. Or turning anything at all into a canvas would be a great place to begin as well, most certainly. Um, what I really love, this is a fantastic quote, which is um, from David Garnett, who married oh, married Belle's daughter, is yep. that right? Yep. Also had an affair with um, the husband, anyway. Um, we won't go into that, it takes too long to <laughs> the relationships. But he describes the way they worked. Um, um, he talks about Grant and Belle and he says they appeared to believe that the inherent horror of any badly designed and constructed piece of furniture could be banished forever by decoration. <laughs> Which I think is hilarious. You can fix it. You can fix it through decoration. There's a, there's a very famous saying about the group that they lived in squares, loved in triangles and painted in circles. So, Dorothy Parker, it's a Dorothy Parker quote. So, it's, um, yes, it's, it's quite the, I mean, to look at their love lives is a whole other thing. A couple of works worth pointing out, because these will be a nice bridge to where we go next, is the work of the Australian potter. The idea of nationhood in the early 20th century was actually much more fickle than it is right now. You could argue that, particularly through COVID, the notion of nationhood has been ensconced or under, underscored. But in the first decades of the 20th century, Antipodean artists had European lives and many of them spent long periods of time. Gladys Rennell is one of them. She's actually buried at Molly Sabata. So she's buried in France and she probably is better known and better celebrated. In fact, there's a street named after her. There's a, there's a Rue Gladys Rennell after her en France. So, is it, am I getting, Renelle, I am. I'm making a terrible error. No, 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 Renelle, 
And it's, it's Renella Potteries. It is Renella Potteries. Amiga. 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 Renault. Yes. We, but, I mean, she but you know what I'm doing? What I just have doing? to explain my error that I just made. I've just overlaid Andanga onto Gladys Renell. The two both being potters, but Ronell's going to give us the bridge to Dangar. You go, back. Oh, yeah, no, no, good, good. Um, <laughs> well, I was going to say, we, I mean, Gladys Renault, um, I mean, there's a nice arts and crafts connection yeah. there because, of course, the Adelaide School of Design, um, or gosh, I'm talking to someone in the room who's actually doing a PhD on the topic, and now I feel nervous. <laughs> um, Adelaide School of Design is established in the second part of the 19th century here in Adelaide, um, which is very much an Adelaide expression of what mm. Morris was advocating for in his arts and crafts movement in, in England. Um, it's a particularly rigorous um, uh, school in comparison to what was happening in other states in Australia. Thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of women go through the school um, and they work um, in a whole range of dis different disciplines. Porcelain painting, embroidery, all the things you would see coming out of well, Morris and Co and, and the English arts and crafts movement. Um, but also Gladys Renault attends the school. Um, but then later, he said, travels to mm. England, kind of rejects a little bit of that aesthetic and that tradition, probably rejects uh, Australian um, where she is, um, and she goes and becomes friends um, with members of the Amiga workshop, and she learns their traditions and their approach to design, and she comes back and produces these particular works. Now, these are here, then slightly later examples of her work, but they're through her company, Renella Potteries, which of course is, was in Renella the time and with uh, Tansy Curtin and I we've talked about whether we should have put some earlier works but actually it kind of does relate to the Amiga piece which mm, is here on the left. It does. One of the things about the Amiga workshop was not always knowing who made it so often works were sold anonymously so you wouldn't have known who the designer or the maker was and I, we thought that that would be a nice connection making within a brand rather than or like a workshops like Amiga rather than being the artist as the individual which Indeed. is a really interesting concept. I also think for students looking at these, the idea of finding the signature and finding the point of difference would be a great activity because it's a challenging task. The two on the left are Omega and the two on the right are Renell. They're only less than 10 years apart, so not that um, distant really. And you're absolutely right, are very much about this idea of the kind of functional form and the everyday aesthetic. Beautiful. Yeah, the, the physicality yeah, of that. Yeah. Renell's yeah. really early in using Australian clays in that way and yeah. in, in the Australian tradition. When, when and if you bring students in, and you don't have to bring students in to talk about the things we're talking about. In fact, the pyjamas that Beck referenced are on the website, so you can do it in your classroom. You can use this in your classroom. You can pull up the V&A in your classroom. You can travel to the V&A in your classroom. But if you do come in, you might be looking at the Roger Fryer because I think it's a wonderful example back to the black croissant lines, the flattened colour, but also the Gesamt Kunstwerk, the whole work of art. The frame becomes the work of art itself, as you can see in this still life jug and eggs from 1911, the year before Gordon Square. And then, of course, this fantastic cabinet that Beck has fairly recently put on display from the late 19th century, early 20th, so it's a much earlier piece. I think you can see that with some of the iconography. It's starting to transition, this particular work here. And uh, it has it embraces that folk aesthetic, humble form. A very humble form, very, very wild applied decoration. Mm. Mm. Many of you have heard me talk about the horse. I'm sure the Belinda de Broglie work 
No horses were harmed in the making of that work. It's a work that is not an example of taxidermy, it's an example of sculpture. That's not me denying its power or its shock value. I'm not going to do that. It is a very compelling stops you in your tracks work and that's okay. It's okay to give art back its power, particularly if you're standing there like me with leather shoes on and a leather handbag. I think to confront our humanity and mortality is, is an okay thing. We've done a lot online with our De Broekia, the pages are still up, I think, about that work. So if you, are, if you are nervous about stepping into that space, and I get it, then I would be preparing your students for that encounter. We used to get kind of letters every week about that work. It doesn't happen so much anymore because I think people have become so accustomed to the work, which is in some ways a little bit disappointing because De Broekia's point is actually to stop us in our tracks and to return some of art's power. I find it fascinating that people, I mean, I don't, because I can see its power. The first time I saw the work, I burst into tears before we acquired it, and then we decided to acquire it, and it was like, okay. But I do think it's interesting that we have a museum full of taxidermy right alongside us, and yet this work is the one that arrests us. And, and so I think they're good things to talk about. That's what I would do if I was in the classroom. So we do, there's a really lovely little segue here. We've stepped from so-called Europe. You know, we're trying to mess with your heads with this idea of a European wing and an Australian wing. We don't really see those things as, as being discreet or different. There are some wonderful examples of Gladys Rennell's work in this very cabinet here. Some of them very, very famous. Emu Beaker being one of my favourites from 1917. This push and pull of nationalism. You know, Rennell working alongside Margaret Preston, who championed the idea of the native, decided she would paint like an Aboriginal artist. I mean, very uncomfortable ideas 100 years on, but very interesting ones, because what you see is an Australia attempting to distinguish itself, to reject empire, to step away from the arms of the British Empire and find its own voice. At the same time that that's happening, some of our emigre artists going the other way in many ways were, coming, were arriving in Europe and becoming European. Literally, in the case of Grace Crowley, Dorrit Black and Anne Dangar, they were apprenticing themselves to European modernists and specifically André Lotte and Albert Glaze. Glaze and Lote were front-runners of a particular type of kind of futuro-cubism. You can see the cubist motif happening here in the two paintings we have of Mirmont. Mirmont was a summer camp in France. Uh, well, it's obviously a location, but it was the site of a summer camp in France that Lote established. This is an unresolved picture because we've got Crowley, now, Grace Crowley was born in Cobbada. She was born in Western New South Wales. We've got Dorrit Black. Where was she born? Right here. Dorrit Black's version of Miermont. But the missing piece of the puzzle is the painting we haven't managed to acquire, which is the painting by Anne Dangar of the very same subject. Dangar was born in Kempsey. If you know New South Wales well, Kempsey's like a coastal town, a, a, a nowhere town, sorry, Kempseyites. But these three women born in these places that end up at a summer camp and all creating views of the same scene. Make sure your kids all create views of the same scene and have an exhibition of that from different perspectives. It would be a really interesting exercise. 
In the case of Dangar, she's, she's the one who died in France, not Renelle. Renelle died in Melbourne. But Dangar, Dangar didn't really return after the 1930s. She ends up staying and she ends up mining the earth. She becomes this kind of agrarian hippie figure where she's working particularly with Glazer's philosophy of bringing things up from the earth. You start to see references to medievalism and particularly Celtic imagery in her work and she starts to channel those influences into these objects made for the home. Beck, do you want to add anything about Ronell or back to Ronell or over to Danga? No, no, I thought it was um, really interesting talking about Australian nationalism and the Emu Beaker because, of course, that particular work is made in London. Yes, yeah, that's so true. here in Australia. Yeah. And this piece, have I got that right? Yep. The, or the Preston piece next to it, yep. all with those kind of Aboriginal designs. Yeah, also, this is the Beaker here. Also made in London. Yeah, all three of these were made in London. And in fact, it's often beyond your own country that you sharpen your articulation of that nationalism, as you all know, for sure. So you've got all of those ideas happening and very early on. I mean, I just like to stop kids and get them to have a look at the dates because I think you see these objects and then you think, what, 1917? And we haven't moved very far in terms of time. We were just in Gordon Square in 19, was that 1912, did I say, or 13? 12, 13, yeah, 13. So we're, we're in those teens of the 20th century. Now, we want to connect in with, you know, one of the lovely things about the collection is that we work together as curators across decorative arts, across painting. We don't actually have this hierarchy. All of these things are in conversation. We're trying to model that in the presentation tonight, but hopefully we model it every day in the way that we display things. This is... Uh, this is when I put my decorative hearts, arts hat on because I love this object so much. Beck's going to do it. No. Beck's going to totally do it. I'm just going to introduce it because it's a car by another means. So I said to Beck, can we have a look inside the car? I think it's interesting. Can we pop the hood? Does anyone know why I'm describing it as a car? Oh, you're excited. This is, this is like the best night of your life, Graham. Graham's usually just saying to people, please don't touch that. <laughs> Tonight he's actually seeing people actively touch things and it's okay. Oh, it looks good. <coughs> Beck said last time she opened one of these, she found a pair of gloves left over in them. <laughs> no drinks, unfortunately. The 1930s. Holden in Australia is well underway. Holden cars in the 1930s had timber chassis. In the 1930s, the steel chassis was introduced, which meant that generations of timber workers were out of work. The chair of Holden, General Motors Holden at the time, based in Melbourne, Sir Lawrence Hartnett, puts the out of work, well, they're not out of work, puts them to work, those workers that have got anachronistic skills and he commissions dozens of pieces of furniture. So this piece of furniture is made by car makers, by timber workers who are accustomed to the form of a car. That just makes me love this even more. Look at these beautiful curved forms. You can see this, you know, running around, I don't know enough about car bodies to know, but running around where a wheel might go, for instance. Great example of revolution and innovation and recreation and revision. 
we end up with this beautiful piece of furniture because it's actually donated to us, yes, by his estate in 1986. And it sits with a flotilla of Holden-related material, all the way through to Margaret Dodd more recently, but also we have the fabulous Rainer Hoff, the original, the symbol of the General Motors Holden, as you know, is the lion with the ball. We have the original Rainer Hoff sculptures in our collection as well. I, I would um, don't share with your students what it looks like on the inside. And when they come to visit, get them to draw it and imagine it. That would be a fun activity, wouldn't it? Any questions, guys, or comments? Have a look at the Grace Cossington Smith over there in Pentecost Road in the middle of this wall. Because I think this idea of the car freeing up the landscape, Beck made the point earlier, which I'd never heard before about the Bar Smiths, I'm fascinated by it, that they were probably among the first Australians, certainly the first Adelaideans to have a car. But the car changes everything. And it strikes me that Grace Cossington Smith was painting this work for the car. This is a new road. This is a road that's about to become, or already perhaps becoming, in a state of becoming a modernist landscape. And this is a bit of a link back to Claris. We're about to say that too, yeah. That this is a nice prelude for you. Although Claris, just let me think about Claris's cars, are probably around 1930. This is 1929. These modern women, obviously Claris Beckett in the Melbourne suburbs, Grace Cossington-Smith in the Sydney suburbs. So she's on the North Shore and she is painting this Sydney which is changing before her very eyes. Now, I do find it really fascinating and in an almost exclusively female audience to ponder the important role that women played as, pardon the pun, the kind of vehicle of modernism in Australian art. We didn't decide to put our feminist hats on tonight consciously, but it is so fascinating that Black, Dangar, Crowley, Cossington-Smith, Preston and Beckett, and then some, all occupy that place in seeing this new world unfolding in the teens, 20s and 30s of the 20th century. I think it'd be a fantastic case study to introduce those artists and have perhaps your students select particular artists to do some research on. While we're here, let's just have a little look at this wall here because it's well, I've been talking a bit about the Gesamt Kunstwerk. This is probably more the Cabinet of Curiosity than the Gesamt Kunstwerk. And it definitely riffs on André Breton's Cabinet of Curiosity from the early 20th century. So we've made a 21st century tip of the hat, really, to Breton. And it's really about this question of who we are in the South and how we make sense of the North. Curiously, Breton in the 1920s was trying to work out who he was in the North and trying to make sense of the South. He was in contact with a whole lot of anthropologists and collectors, including Karl Kupka, a Swiss anthropologist, who was collecting work from Aboriginal communities and taking it to France. So 100 years ago, looking at these works from Aboriginal Australia, including them in his collections. So this is our kind of inversion of that principle, kind of opposite day approach. Beck. Yep, absolutely. I guess we're talking about, the, we've been using the word modernism yep. a lot yep. this evening. And I guess when people you know, now think of modernism, they have a very 
particular aesthetic. Very sexy, very popular aesthetic at the moment. Mm. I think you've um, beautiful mid-century spaces and homes, um, which m we use the word mid-century in particular, but most of the mid-century is not actually mid-century. It's more 60s and 70s <laughs> here in, in Australia. Um, but that particular aesthetic, um, particularly through furniture um, in Australia, comes about uh, largely to do with some uh, immigrant um, designers and artists who flee Europe um, after the Second World War, in particular a lot of Jewish designers, um, and not just here but in Australia, uh, across the world. Um, and they, I guess not just in furniture but in design and in craft throughout all the art schools in Australia um, managed to revolutionise art education. So most of the metal studios in um, art schools are established by immigrant and immigre artists from Europe. Um, furniture, ceramics um, completely changed the way that Australians learn um, in these particular um, disciplines um, in, in art education. Um, now this is a, we're going to talk about some blokes. Um, shock horror for us. So. Um, but I am a big fan of uh, a designer who came out from uh, from Germany to Australia um, just before, and I think it's 1938. I think most people leave Germany in 1938, just before Kristallnacht, before it gets really, really bad, um, particularly for Jewish designers. And his name is Shulam Krimper. Now, he is the designer of two works in our collection. This very sexy uh, cocktail cabinet behind me and also a piece that we walked past in gallery four and um, should have pointed that out beforehand. Um, I mean, this is probably, this is the much more glamorous piece, but of course, um, the other piece of furniture in four uses Australian timbers, which is an interesting story in itself. Um, now, he comes to Australia, 1930, uh, no, goes to England and then comes to Melbourne in 1939, um, and he establishes uh, a, almost um, folklore studio and people still talk to me about him being just this mysterious character um, and he started designing uh, bringing together his quite well-developed uh, technique and aesthetic um, in German cabinet making of course have an extraordinary legacy of Biedermeier style um, furniture so he has mm. that kind of heritage and, and in history in, in making and designing into this kind of mid-century um, design. Um, he establishes his studio in St Kilda and are mostly Jewish um, immigrant Australians by his designs and the story goes that you would go in and ask for a table and you might end up with a chair so you never quite <laughs> knew what you were getting. He only made one-off pieces um, and he's the first designer in Australia to have a retrospective in a state gallery which was the NGV in the late 1940s. <laughs> so if you think about the Biedermeier um, style of furniture from the first half of the 19th century, that very, very German aesthetic, very refined, kind of neoclassical, um, no fussiness, just these beautiful lines allowing the material to kind of be present um, is a perfect connection for modernism. You know, I think I talked about it before, is it's not just in modernism and design and craft, and it's not just about having the hand visible, but it's also about have, letting the material speak for itself, which is always a funny term saying it has the material going to speak for itself, but mm. not having fussy design and not having fussy mm. elements and a 
applied decoration is really important to was really important to the modernists and you can see that in this particular piece um, but even more so in the chest of drawers we walk past in gallery four mm -hmm. it's even more beautiful and refined in this piece this is that all like nipples for me yeah. <laughs> so you've got this crossing over this sense of well, what's the date on this crimper cabinet it's cocktail it's 65 so you've got this moment happening and this beyond mid-century as as beck said before follows more questioning about identity and we our margaret preston collection is astounding so it should be she was born in Port Adelaide and she was born as Rose McPherson, Rose Margaret McPherson, and later married and became Preston and preferred her middle name, Margaret. And what Preston does, you know, she's fallen out of favour a little bit, I would say, in the early parts of the 21st century, but I think she's back because what she signifies is this kind of reaching towards a, a, an ideal of a, of a reconciled Australia, if you like. One of the most interesting works, I think, in her collection, within our collection, is Aboriginal Flowers that sits above the crimper. It was actually the first work acquired by the Foundation, and the Foundation turned 40 this year. So it was their first acquisition into the collection. I don't know if they knew how radical they were being at the time, to be honest. But you've got a few things there that you've already seen. It's, it's from 1928. You've got the strong black cloisonne line, that outline that's happening, the flattening of the colours, the decorative treatment of the surface. But you've also got an embrace of Aboriginal flowers. Now, it's not called Aboriginal flowers because you've got the colours of the Aboriginal flag because it was decades off being actually created in 1928. It's called Aboriginal flowers because what is actually depicted in the vase there are feather flowers. So they're not real flowers. They're, fe they're flowers made from feathers, which are part of an ongoing craft that's practised, interestingly, across a lot of Aboriginal Australia. I've seen feather flowers up in Yirrkala in northeast Arnhem Land, and feather flowers are also part of a southeastern tradition. And you'll see it in... Uh, around Melbourne, around communities around Melbourne. So these are actually feather flowers that were made as souvenir flowers. So, so here you've got Preston embracing that idea. We've got Aboriginal flowers here, and over here we've got Aboriginal landscape, 1941. Now if I came in with a group of students, I'd be looking at Aboriginal landscape and then sneaking around the corner and looking at the bark paintings, because ultimately that's precisely what Preston was doing. She was a member of the Australian Museum, which is the museum in College Street, Sydney, and she was a member of the kind of anthropological society of the time, and she did lots of travelling and lots of collecting. So she was looking at Aboriginal cultural heritage, and she was in a sense, imitating some of the techniques in her own work. So this is, just as the cocktail cabinet is a car by another means, this is in a sense a bark painting by another means, through the lens of Preston where she's trying to embrace some of those techniques and certainly the palette of Aboriginal bark painting to produce this particular work. One of the reasons that we have insisted, and it's been up for quite a few years now, on this domestic tableau, is because we have a philosophy here that the domestic, and this is coming full circle from where we started with Morris, is kind of like the Trojan horse of modernism in Australia. Because you could sneak ideas into the country that were way more radical if you did them through the so-called decorative and domestic arts. 
that you could smuggle in, if you like, some fantastic concepts, some political statements, some culturally kind of challenging or sensitive topics through decorative arts in a way that you couldn't with other art forms and certainly with other forms of expression. So this installation kind of pays homage to that. And it's constantly evolving. Two weeks ago, we installed this work here. Did anyone come to the Tarnandi Art Fair? They might remember this particular work from the Tarnandi Art Fair. This work was made last year. And I think it strikes an uncanny conversation with the James Cant work, which is in the top right-hand corner here, which is in 1948. So you've got the 20th century as this arc obviously 21st century here, but the 20th century is this arc of innovation and experimentation, this kind of idea of stretching out to think about, well, who are we? What is Australia? How do we live here? How do we live differently? And what do these designs mean? What do we take from one place to another and how do things change in that act of migration? How we honour the emigre, how we honour the so-called native, which is a term out of favour now that Preston would have certainly used. Always important for us to include the work of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander artists. So here you've got a few, as I mentioned before, this weaving, which is a collaboration between three women working in Manangrida, but also the work of arguably Australia's most significant Aboriginal potter, Thankupi. So Thankupi began with very simple elbow pots. You've probably seen videos of her working in the middle of the century where she would take clay, place it around her elbow to make those very simple pinch pots or elbow pots, and then evolved those forms to create these really extraordinary forms. My favourite, this one here from 1994, 1977 here. And then I think about artists. Maria Gazard actually is a good example here of an artist who, a bit like Preston, but she was working in clay, was trying to emulate the local, emulate the idea of a local form and a truly Australian practice. I think perhaps when you're bringing students in, don't try and do too much, which, which arguably is what we've done tonight, but, but do think about one of the reasons we curate this way in curating it, we're trying to engender curiosity in you and, and in all of our visitors. But one of the reasons we curate this way is that the conversations become quite helpful. And you, have, you don't have to know very much to, to start those conversations. So it might be, I'm just looking over here at the Hermia Ware, for instance. This is the incredible work of Hermia Boyd, who was the um, partner, lesser known, unfortunately, not for long, hopefully, partner of David Boyd, part of the famous Boyd dynasty, and she created her own ceramics label called Hermia Ware. So this example of Hermia Ware. The inscriptions, the inc incisions in the Hermia Ware strike up a conversation with so many things in this space, including the Thankopee. So I think let students make those connections themselves. Really indulge in the art of long looking, get them to draw it, because if they draw it, they'll see it. Try and resist the, ju the judgment and the interpretation, which are the things that we jump to as educators. We have trouble sometimes just seeing something for what it is. And then get them to start thinking about those conversations between the objects. For us, it's less, I mean, I think it's important to talk about it as a chair compared to a painting, but I think there's more than that going on and they shouldn't be dismissed purely because of their, their kind of form or their function in each case. Have you got any questions, ideas, anything to throw our way?
Yeah, the Dora Chapmans, yeah. So Dora Chapman was a really important educator actually here in South Australia. She was a painter who, once again, a kind of precocious experimenter, was known for her abstract work. And we've got a couple of abstract works down in Gallery 4 and 5, one, in, one or two in Gallery 5, but also for these figurative works here where she was creating these bold, flat, poster-like statements of clearly femininity. The work on the right, I think of it as being derived from Botticelli, from the Venus. I've never actually read that or proven that, but I'm, I'm sure of it. <laughs> um, you've got this embrace. I don't know if she's used poster paints. Let me just have a quick look. Yeah, she's used gouache. So she's used a, a poster paint as opposed to using an oil paint. So she's trying to create a very strong kind of poster-like message. There, the date of these works is actually from the late 60s into the 1970s. There's something very much kind of zeitgeisty of their time, don't you think? Good example of Australian pop art. She, um, artist and educator and partner of James Kant, whose work is up here. And both of them were modernist zealots. They took on, they travelled extensively. Their home was here in Adelaide. And they took on, they collected ideas from the world. Kant connecting very much with European surrealism, but also with Aboriginal motifs. And for Dora Chapman, very much this idea of abstraction as the purest form of modernism. So we have fantastic self-portraits of hers. One hangs in my office, I'm very, very lucky. Um, a very small self-portrait of hers, which is a stunning work, quite representational, which was made in about 1935 from memory. And can I just say it's the show we're gonna do soon. So you're first to know, we've definitely, it's, we're overdue for a show that looks at Dora because the, our collection enables us to chart her very first works through to her very, very last works. Dora Chapman died in Adelaide in 1995 and when she died a lot came into our collection from the estate. There is one book that was published by Beagle, Beagle Press rather, in a, probably about 15 to 20 years ago now, but and it, it deals with both of the artists together, but Dora is um, definitely up for a bit of love. Thank you. Thank you so much, guys. Thanks, Beck. Thanks, Kylie.